Are we thinking clearly about resource risks? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. It's episode 94, and today I'm talking with David Peck, who has one of the longest job titles I've ever come across. David Peck is Associate Professor, Climate Design and Sustainability, Circular Built Environment and Critical Materials, Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment at Delft University of Technology, also known as TU Delft. David researches and teaches in the field of circular design, focusing on remanufacturing and critical materials. He's a founding member of the Circular Built Environment Hub and works cross-disciplinary on circular challenges, in particular on digital, ICT, mobility and renewables fields. David holds many other roles, including Honorary Associate Professor at University College London, the Bartlett, and an adjunct professor at MIP Politecnico di Milano, Graduate School of Business. David also sits on the executive board of KIC EIT Raw Materials. David also works with ad hoc committees in the European Union, is a Horizon Europe reviewer, and he's a TU Delft lead scientist for a number of EU Horizons 2020 projects. David is TU Delft's representative for the EU KIC EIT Raw Materials and he leads a number of projects in this important programme that has a focus on critical materials and circular economy, in particular remanufacturing. Today, David explains how critical raw materials are defined, helping us understand why they're critical from the perspective of different countries or regions, and how they're assessed and scored. We discuss the pressure on critical raw materials, particularly from the perspective of low-carbon technologies, and how this presents ethical dilemmas around fair shares for countries and even across different industry sectors. I asked David about the conversations he's having with businesses and policymakers, and whether he's noticing positive trends towards a good understanding of critical raw materials and a recognition of the complex issues and risks. We discuss the ethics and other issues around mining, and David unpacks the dangers of oversimplifying the arguments for avoiding more mining. David, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here with you. Yeah, it's great to see you again. And I'm conscious we touched briefly on critical raw materials back in episode 78 with Colin Church, and I'm really looking forward to digging deeper into them today. Uh, sorry for that pun. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you get it all the time. <laughs> so perhaps we could start by asking you to explain what critical raw materials are. Um, there's the EU context, but other countries have similar or slightly different lists as well. 
Yeah, and it, 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 it might help to start with some more, should I say, generic societal terms which get bandied around. And, and this is where people will rapidly get confused. And so let me just see if I can deconfuse the situation, but I'll probably fail completely. But let me try. So people will talk and you'll read in media, popular media articles, for example, and they'll talk about material scarcity. So scarcity is a, is, a, is a hot topic. Another one is rarity. And then you'll hear rarers. And so then there's a sort of this popular myths almost about, sorry, what exactly are we talking about? Oh, I think I know what that is. Um, the reason I start with that, because when I'm talking to somebody about material criticality, who, as is most cases of people that I talk to, don't understand or don't know or never even heard of it, I sometimes, to create a bridge, I start with that. So I use these terms which they may have seen in popular media or in, 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 in other forums. Um, so why don't I use those terms? Well, one of the problems with a word like scarcity is it is hard to define. And there are many words uh, in language which are lovely, and we use them all the time, uh, like the word lovely. And then you go, sorry, could you give me a scientific definition of that? Well, of course, that's impossible. Um, and it's the same with scarcity. So th there's a dictionary definition, and that's about where it ends. And in terms of science trying to measure things, because obviously the sort of definition of science is you have to have some kind of measurement to understand it, you can't. So let's just explore for a second the measurement, what method do we use? Um, generally, generally across the world, there is a generally accepted viewpoint of doing, uh, defining material criticality through a two axis graph. So if you picture in your mind a two axis graph, vertical, horizontal axis, uh, on the vertical axis, for example, if I, I use the example from the European Union that you mentioned, you would have supply risk. So the chances of you not getting something when you want it. Now, I didn't say running out and I didn't say scarcity. I just said when you want something, you don't get it. Um, and actually, there are a range of dimensions, which I won't go through now, but a lot of different dimensions which you can measure to some degree to come up with a number on a scale of supply risk. So you put that on and you 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 draw a line which you define as your threshold above that line is critical in terms of supply risk and below it is not then you have the horizontal axis that says economic importance and again there's a range of factors which you look at in terms of the importance of a given material to a specific economy a country normally and again you draw a line vertically that says beyond that line it's critical below that it's not and then of course you've now got a two by two matrix on the graph and of course the usual thing is anything in the top right hand corner box is a critical material and that's generally how we define so i've gone through the methodology if you like um examples of this and then this is where the popular things so for example some of generally across the world the most recognized uh, and accepted critical materials of the highest criticality is um, the rare earths. 
so rareth elements, the heavy and light rareths, for example. So uh, strange materials like neodymium and dysprosium and terbium and all these strange names that we vaguely remember from the chemistry class at school. Um, and and a range of other materials and there's quite a long list so the eu for example has a list of 41 materials so it's quite a long ex extensive list but that's generally how we define material criticality supply risk versus economic importance mm. and just to come back to that eu list is the 40 odd the list that they assess every few years yes and then i think the latest iteration there were 27 deemed to be critical to the eu is that right um it's a bit more um, and right. so first of all the first part of your question was um, do they do this every few years yes mm. they do and the next one will come out next year 2023 um the, the next assessment with the lists it's a bit more than just a list. They have a range of extensive publications with all sorts of analysis. And it's conducted by what's known as an ad hoc working group. So it's a bunch of scientists and other stakeholders and in industry and policymakers, and all sorts of people in the commission themselves coming together for quite an extensive period of time. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it costs a lot of money and there's a lot of work. Um, and, and therefore, it's only done periodically. Uh, th now we come into some of the crit criticisms of the criticality lists. You know, it's, is it done often, often enough? Is it up to date enough? Does it move with current affairs now? Probably not. Um, and then, and then you said, you know, numbers. Well, one of the things we do know because the methodology has been more or less similar over a number of assessments now we've done four assessments over since 2010 um we see more materials becoming more critical on average some go less some drop out of criticality some new ones come in but on average the trend line is to put it simply the problem's getting worse mm. Yes, I've I've noticed that when I've looked at them. And not all the materials are um, minerals or, uh, you know, metals that we might um, consider to be used in, in products like tech and so on. There's sand, there's even natural rubber um, on the list. But maybe you could talk us through the kind of products that are relying on those critical raw materials. Yeah, the, when I started researching this a long time ago, um, I started off uh, with what I need to do is get together a load of products that use critical materials. I'll do a list. Well, I go, I've been going about six months and I stopped. I remember sitting with a colleague and I said, I'm going about this the wrong way. It's going to be a lot easier to have a list of products that don't use critical materials. That's going to be a lot easier because that'll be quite a short list. Um, so I generally found uh, a lot of things do. One of the things the EU has done, and, and, and the UK government has done this as well now as well, is, is a range of technologies which are deemed bottleneck technologies and highly important in relation to material criticality. And it's no surprise that a lot of those uh, revolve around low carbon uh, transition or climate transition technologies. So, for example, wind power. For example, 
that drive motors in electric mobility. For example, large traction batteries for vehicles, for example, or, or for energy storage in buildings, solar panels on the roof. Um, heat, uh, heat pumps, um, and also tech that we use to help us manage energy and, and control the generation of energy better. So like data, data storage, data transmission networks, I see the, the forefront of concern. Um, one of the reasons why they're at the forefront of concern is that we need and must ramp up their deployment at scale really fast. So because we need to do that, the demand of these materials is just ramping up so fast that the ability of systems to supply, remember I said about supply risk, are, are really challenged. And mm. so, so those types. There is, I should add, now coming into the mix, a range of other technologies which are deemed important and they're to do with defense and military equipment. So that's another dimension that is part of the challenge of critical materials. But, you know, it's a, it's a different dimension as well. Mm. And I guess thinking about the supply risk and the factors that can influence that. Um, and I'm guessing we're not going to have time to dig into this. But I'm wondering what the impact of um, you know, middlemen, commodities brokers, and and so on, mm. and then also, um, you know, geopolitical tensions and protectionist um, policies and things like that. I've been reading a bit about um, some of the strategies that t China uses to kind of secure its access to uh, raw materials that aren't within its within its borders. Um, but certainly, I've been getting. Um, worried and we you know we can see the effects can't we of middlemen mm. and, and brokers and commodities trading co hedge funds and all the rest of it with what's been happening with the war mm. in ukraine and the yeah. you know the the price spikes there um yeah. so i guess that adds a whole new <laughs> layer of complexity to the whole problem well it yes it does um and it sounds all tech and all new because you name the materials you name the technologies and it's all very 21st century but then we just have to pause for a moment and just roll back over the sometimes sad and sorry history of the 20th century and go sorry didn't resources play a key role in both the evolution and development of geopolitical tensions as we now term them and conflict and who won the conflicts and it was all around materials mm. and by the way i include in that broad definition of resources should i say we could include oil mm. um so you know oh did we have some conflicts over oil in the 20th century and they go uh yeah <laughs> and in the 21st century it goes on uh, yes, um, so so it's not new, but just kind of, you mentioned about supply risk. So in 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 the again in the methodology, you'll get things like global supply and EU sourcing. You'll get uh, a, a calculation done called the Herfman-Hirschendahl index, and you sort of go, sorry, what does that mean? It's market concentration. So 
is there just one country or two countries supplying everybody? Um, you'll get... like the world government's performance. Then you'll get import reliance. Trade agreements and restrictions, you were touching on rate is one of the things they look at, so how much can we recycle something? And one of the key things in, in both economic importance and supply risk is substitution. Can you use something else uh, in its place? Um, and of course, the, the more challenging all that list is in terms of supply, uh, the more difficult it is. One of the things we don't see in this assessment is, sorry, what are we doing with demand? So isn't the problem over demand rather than lack of supply? And that's a good, that's a good question in itself. And because I know both of us would say, yes, one of the core problems has been, again, we're back to the 20th century. In the 21st century, we are just demanding too much stuff. We, uh, our, our, the planetary boundaries cannot supply this amount of stuff in the way that we want it. It can't be done. So, so that's a, yeah, another dimension, but perhaps we'll come into that. Yes, I'd, I'd definitely like to touch on that. Good. So, David, I can I can see that you know you're really um, deeply fascinated about this, um, mm. and I'm curious to know how you became interested and involved in it in the mm. in the first place. Mm. That's a really great question, and 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 and. I know the answer to this. Well, how did I end up in the weird and wonderful world of critical materials? I am not a material scientist. I'm not a chemist. Uh, I'm not a mining engineer. I, 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 you know, how did I end up in this world? Um, it's For me, it's quite simple. So I was working with lots of product design students. And I used to go into lectures and I'd say, hey, guys, there's there's a massive problem. We've got some colorless odorless gas at some unknown concentration in the upper atmosphere at some future scenario climate events which i need you to design a product for which of course these these folks are people that work with materials and design and make interesting things and they're kind of like i'm having trouble translating that into a product i can't i don't understand the brief try again dave at the same time i was i was looking at the work of uh, Nicholas Stern, um, looking at the economic effects of climate and and what a disaster it will be, and because his work is thoroughly valid, it's it is going to be a trillion, multi-trillion dollar economic disaster, and, and uh, money is one thing, but of course, living species on the planet is another, um, and I was thinking. I need to work with these folks. I need to work with designers and architects and help them understand the choices they make have implications. And then I, I came, I'd heard about some issues around what was then called material scarcity. And I then came over to Delft and I'd, I'd been there a short time and I sat in a meeting with a, a colleague from another organization and he started talking about this resource constraint, these critical materials. Well, I, it was like a 30 second thing. I'm on the edge of my chair and I'm like, this is what I need. I can talk to designers and engineers and architects about this because I'm talking about the materials and the technologies they put into their products, buildings and systems. 
Um, this is what I want. It's tangible. And yet, at the same time, it is materials and energy, and therefore climate and materials and energy are two sides of the same coin. It still completely interconnects with the real goal and purpose I have is about reducing the horrendous climate effects we're having on this planet and mitigating and living within the planetary boundaries. So for me, it was it was the, the dream thing that that was the good story. The nightmare came afterwards with how weird and complex the, the topic is, but I, I'm still working on that. <laughs> yeah i should think that's going to be it's never going to get less less complicated no it just gets more weird and more complicated <laughs> so i'm interested to unpack something else that you and i have discussed in the past um i remember a while ago i think it was earlier this year i saw you post um i think it's one of your students gloria flick um yeah. her paper highlighting supply and demand issues for telecoms equipment yeah. Um, looking at you know the 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 elements that they um, uh, they used and the shared elements and and their forecasts for future production versus yeah. what we know about supply, and that brought us on to the whole issue and question around fair shares. Yeah. Um, obviously, we can see from from what you've told us about the EU critical raw materials list that that's the EU thinking about how it protects its own economy mm. uh, and gets access to the materials it thinks it, it will it will need. Mm. So I guess that brings up the 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 kind of perspective from a from a country or or regional mm. geopolitical organization. Mm. But there's also the the fair shares across different products and different sectors. Mm. I know in Gloria's paper one of the pieces of telecoms equipment she looked at was was um 5g mm. and i guess from my you know non-technical background i'd see 5g and things like that as a bit of a vanity project you know it's mm. it's just helping things get a bit a bit faster and a bit more efficient mm. whereas we've got other technologies um you know like maybe maybe batteries and wind turbines and things like that maybe they're more essential so is anything happening to think about how we should use the materials where we do have supply um, risks? Yeah. Um, or is that a conversation that's that's not really happening? Is it just about countries? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, fairness. So, first first point to make uh, are our global supply uh, of technology and critical materials are they fair and the answer is in many cases no um we've even got now and i know in colleagues in industrial ecology at leiden and there's a joint program with delft and leiden industrial ecology involved in it we've got graduates there working on a new well it's nothing new it's very old but it's now called green colonialism so our demand for these materials from the global south in particular and our expectation that they will be supplied to us because after all we're immensely important people and we have to be supplied with what, exactly what we want never mind what we need um and therefore well you know if there's, there's exploitation has to go on or unfair practice has to go on that's just the way it has to be because that's the way the world works um 
There are, of course, direct cases of what are known as conflict materials or where direct human rights abuse against the UN Human Rights Convention, where it goes on on a daily basis. I always point to the example, it was a while ago, and I've not seen much data to say it's changed that much, but cobalt used in batteries, so including in mobile devices, and 50% of mobile devices had had conflict materials including human rights abuse. So, you know, out of the two of us, one of our mobiles has, has got conflict elements in it. Mm. So, so those types of, of things are, are challenging. Um, and, and this is part of the wicked challenge. So let me just unpack this a little bit more. So we know that the global north uh, is heavy climate emitters and that, that we're the heaviest. And we know we want to reduce. And the way we're going to do that, because we could argue, well, what's the ultimate killer on the planet? It's going to be climate. Uh, it's going to wipe out life on this planet completely if we don't do something about it. So let's let's take action. So then there's the kind of unspoken argument. Well, if some people have to suffer along the way in order to do that, then that's a judgment call we have to make. And of course, none of this sounds palatable at all. We're sitting there and going, no, it has to be done fairly and it has to be done at scale and we have to do. And it's like, well, that's a wish list of what we want. What is actually going to happen? So I often talk to students and researchers and I say, I'm sorry, what you have to start thinking about is a, a set of poor choices. Your mission is to find the least poor set of choices that you can find on this topic because there just aren't good solutions that are realistic to deploy, that societies will accept, that citizens will accept, that governments will accept, that companies will accept. So we have to navigate our way through. Now that sounds a bit mealy-mouthed and, and weak and poor as if I'm not bothered. Uh, I really am. And actually this is a topic that I'm fascinated and, and, and often deeply saddened by what I discover and see. Um, we do have to do it differently. One of the things I am optimistic about is growing ideas. And I think a combination of COVID, global supply chains, and the war in Europe have pushed this into the forefront is for European countries to become more resilient and self-sufficient. The idea of just draw some colonialist idea of just going out there and drawing whatever we need in order to fuel whatever we want it's the beginnings of the end of that thinking and i think if we can break that and become more self-sufficient in ourselves without of course <laughs> again there's a wicked challenge oh fine we just don't buy anything from anyone anywhere and you go well you just plunge them into poverty so that wasn't very smart um so doing it in a in a in a thoughtful, well thought through, supportive way of other countries in the world, especially global south, I think gives me some optimism. But it's 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 an ill-defined plan, if you hear what I'm saying, and I'm not quite sure whether how far we're getting there. Yeah, I think there are just so many complex issues, aren't there? Mm. Um, mm. And I guess the trend for less government regulation rather than more is not really helping any of those um you know new mining projects and new extraction projects 
to yeah. necessarily go go as far as we would want them to in terms of both social justice with not just the people employed there but the effect on people living around those communities mm. and also of course the ecological damage from the mines and yeah. in in the research I've been doing for my next book I've been looking at some of the social trends and noticed quite a lot of mass protest against mining projects mm. um, not just in the global south either but you know people are really starting to realize how destructive it is for you know wildlife hab habitats but also for um, you know if we think about lithium contamination of of water and that's one of the yeah. the issues about um uh fracking for shale gas and so on um you know the the uk government um just kept talking about how the um risk of earthquakes was a lot less than you know mm -hmm. had been publicized conveniently sweeping all the other um more likely issues un uh, under the carpet um so the on, sorry just, but just sorry just coming on that i mean you know it's not to interrupt but this is this is the challenge right so we said we sit there and go well well my, you know you, you more or less said well mining's a bad thing i know i'm paraphrasing and that's not exactly what you said but you you were sort of saying well it's it's damaging infrastructure and of course extracting resources like that is going to have even in the best of cases environmental and societal impact and that that is is negative impact. It always is the case. But then we sit there and go, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I want, want to live as sustainably as I can in terms of energy and mobility and and product and so on and so forth. And I go, okay. So you do want mining? No, I don't want any mining. But I want the solar panels on my roof, and I want a heat pump, and I want an electric car, and I want my digital devices in order to try and be lighter touch on the planet. Right. But you're not making any sense, because I don't know how I'm going to make those technologies for you without mining materials. Oh, but can't we just recycle them? They can just be recycled out of the materials we've got around us. Um, no. The short answer is no, we can't. Yes, you can. You can recycle anything. And like, no, it's complicated, but we just can't do it in the timescales that we need. You know, we've got till 2030 to try and get this poor planet within some sensible degree change of climate change. And the scale of stuff we need to build across Europe is just astonishing. I think society has no idea about the scale. You know, fossil fuels are just yesterday's sun concentrated and bottled. And we're going to try and power ourselves without using yesterday's sunshine. We're going to use today's sunshine. And the technology to do that is just highly material demanding. And mining is the only way forwards. Again, we're not having a, a realistic debate about this. We have to mine. We have to mine in Europe. And the mines have to be local. And you mentioned, for example, so sometimes when you mine some of these rare earths, they get bound up with light, mild radioactive materials. So, oh, we're going to open a radioactive uh, licensed mine 10 kilometers from your children's school. Like, no, I'm going to stop that. I don't want that. But then I come back again to the debate you just had about fair. You're not bothered when that's in the middle of Africa. But when it's here, it's suddenly of concern. And it, so again, I come back to a set of poor choices. Mm. 
what we're not having is a grown-up debate about the poor choices we have to make. Mm, I agree. And I think, um, you know, that, that brings me back to the, the kind of, um, you know, is 5G essential? Um, mm. And should, you know, that it, it kind of comes back to what we've talked about before. Do, you know, mm. do we need a global resources council that looks at fair shares and said, okay, this is a set of poor choices, but what we need to do is minimize the mining of this particular material because it's got these you know radioactive um side effects and mm. you know the one place we could maybe set up a mine that's away from human population means clearing ancient um you know rainforest or something so that's not there's no perfect choice mm. so mm. should it be no, that there's we, no that good choices or exactly but should yeah. it be i mean we talked about you know reducing demand so um, you know, you and I are both uh, enthusiastic about the circular economy and its potential to reduce that. But should mm. there be something whereby we try and prioritise the, the the products and the sectors that mm. are most essential in helping us move towards, yeah. Yeah. A, you know, a zero carbon economy and move towards an economy where we're regenerating biodiversity because that's just as big a threat in in my view as as climate and so i think i think this is a really interesting point and i i looked at this i I researched this what i said was okay let's take the dutch government they say by 2030 we want to reduce by 50 percent primary material consumption in the dutch economy we don't know how we're going to do that. But anyway, that's, I, I like the ambition, 55% lower climate emissions. So I looked at it and I thought to myself, um, what is it that has done in the past? What was done in history to get down to 50% less demand and yet could still keep society supplied? And I, I came to Britain in the Second World War. So it took them a couple of years to control the supply of product and, 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 and services to the society to balance the demand supply that they were faced with in times of war. Now, I sort of talk about this, but actually what you're exploring in your question is the same question. And the way they did it in the Second World War with British society is not, oh, you can have what you want, we will decide what you need and give it to you. The bit that I think is underexplored in the story is societal well-being. So what else can we, if you can't go out and buy whatever you want, whenever you want, given your, your budget that you've got, if you can't just spend money on buying stuff, whether you need it or not, what else can we give you? And so art, culture, museums, music, whatever it happens to be that is fulfilling for people and, and and enlightens them hopefully perhaps maybe that's a way forwards in in other words consuming stuff might not be an option mm. doing stuff that enriches our lives could be great yeah i big, think that's really big ideas big yeah ideas. <laughs> yeah it's, it's really interesting and it plays into um a lot of the ideas that people like Jeremy Lent are talking about, you know, about, yeah. about how we've lost our social connections and the yeah. one of the important things we need to do to move through this is is to 
get those back. And I don't mean social media connections with people we don't really know. <laughs> it's kind of proper, <laughs> yeah. proper communities. So yeah. Um, yeah. I think we've, you know, we've talked a bit about um, how we've arrived at, at this point. Um, do you want to, to you know, is there, is there anything in terms of the circular economy approach that you think yeah. could help unlock it? and yeah. or that you think is um, uh, being missed and, yes, and overlooked. there is. So in, in the current, most of the policy around circular has a heavy focus on recycling secondary materials. Now, in the end, if in the end, in any circular system, you should maximize recycling because that's the only route the materials go the materials themselves go back into the production of new product again. So that's the, the final closing of the loop, as it were. But that's often where we start. So we sort of go, well, let's mine stuff, produce stuff, use it for one use cycle, and then smash it all up and try and get some materials out and see what we can and it's energy intensive and we don't want to go. Um, and I'm like thinking, sorry, we missed the bits in the middle. So the parts around product life extension, for example. So what is the effect on critical materials if we are using products and systems for multiple use cycles? If we're first of all, perhaps just straight reusing them, then we repair and reuse them then we uh, refurbish them and reuse them, and then we remanufacture and reuse them. And I'm particularly focused on remanufacturing in my work. Um, and the answer to that question is, is poorly understood. We don't really know. Logic suggests to us that if you're using the same materials over and over and over again, you're reducing the demand rate. And that buying time will help us a lot. In the end, of course, over time, it makes no difference. In the end, the product all goes back into recycling. And if you lose materials in that process, that's what happens. But by slowing down the demand rate, and if we can slow it down enough, that could be really valuable to us. It's not really been very well explored in the field. So the interlinkage between product life extension and critical material demand and supply is poorly understood. Wow, we I'm don't surprised know. about that. I'm, I'm really surprised about yeah, that. Yeah, scientifically, Paulie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's well understood by people like me talking about it all the while. Wouldn't that be a sensible thing to do? And everybody nods their heads. But then, of course, if the scientist in the room would sit there and go, and your empirical evidence for this is? And they go, I don't have any. And they go, hmm, yes, scientist, you better go and get some empirical evidence. So I am proposing funding to, to explore this further because everyone I talk to in the field says this has to be explored. It's a wise thing to do. Mm. But we do need a better understanding of what happens. Mm. We, we have done a lot of work on closing the loop through eventual recycling. Um, the, the, the bad news there is with the rapid ramp up of low carbon and, and, and climate mitigation technologies, it's going to take us till 2040 plus to ramp up the recycling because stuff stuff has to go into use cycles and then come out of use cycles to get into the recycling cycles. Mm. 
Um, and, and much of it won't that, have been designed with recycling in mind. It so making it, you know, <laughs> more yes, more so. resource intensive, more energy intensive, and and you know, less value yeah. coming out. Yeah, of it. exactly. Yeah. So I, I, th think... I think the summary of my answer is: we need to explore across the range of the circular options, not mm. just the one that seems obvious, which is the recycling one. Yeah, and and that follows on nicely from. Um, the episode 90 of the podcast where I was talking about, you know, is circular really sustainable? And I was yeah. complaining that lots of companies are focusing on um, sustainable in inverted commas materials and more recycling. And we're just losing so much, so much value. If we thought about the way that iPhones have developed over the last few years, you know, there are hardly any technological changes in each new iPhone model, it's mostly about software and, you know, one one big thing that they can kind of make a splash about. But it, it seems to me that there's no reason why they couldn't have designed it like a Fairphone to be modular so that they could just, you know, offer yeah. that that upgraded bit for those people who, who want it um, and, 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 and be able I, to swap it add, out. Yeah, I mean, I would add that in the circular models I like, at the, at the top, it actually says refuse and mm. rethink. Mm. And I think they get too little attention. You know, like, do we, we do actually need to say, no, we, we just don't need this stuff. Mm. Um, very difficult, of course. And of course, we're, we're into big things again directly. And we talk about economy just now, we talk about growth. And of course, European economies, for example, are just absolutely struggling with the idea of not having economic growth and they don't really know a different model how do how do we run economies how do we have run a tax system and it's a big debate in the uk right now without never-ending growth mm. and, and these questions are coming to the fore I'm, I'm pleased in a way that economists are struggling with this because at least it's beginning for some thinkers to start to say there has to be a different way Mm. If we can't draw fossil fuels and never-ending resources out of the planetary system in a, in a just never-ending, take-make-waste way, and if that's the system that drives the economic growth, then we have to change everything. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which and I, both I think inspires it's become... me and, 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 wor and worries me. Mm. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's, it's becoming clearer, though, that there are companies able to operate profitably by offering reuse repair services mm. renting instead of, of instead of or as well as selling things yeah. and companies that are able to look at the the embedded value in the products that they've made and put onto the market and realizing that designing those to be disposed of quite quickly so they can be replaced with the next new model means that an awful lot of the value you've embedded in the product, that value being made up of resources, energy, water, labor, and of course, IP, intellect. Mm. When, you, when you're encouraging all that to just be thrown away, you're throwing away your own value. If, mm. if third-party companies, there's in, in the US, there's a company that remanufactures light aircraft made by other manufacturers mm. so if it's possible to remanufacture a light aircraft 
that you didn't even make yourself to be safe mm. <laughs> and yeah. and have a business operating out, out you know profitably for years and years after that why can't we do it with practically everything and this is this is the bit of the of the policy um conversation that just doesn't seem to be registering and I, and I, I find it so frustrating that you know the the EU the UK all the other economies that are wondering how they're going to um, you know, get get back to the economic growth thing, create meaningful jobs, become more resilient and less dependent on um, countries that we'd rather not do business with. Why why aren't they going all in on the circular economy? Mm-hmm. It's just um, anyway. <laughs> I bang on about that at, at every opportunity, as, as I'm sure Good. you can tell. Good. No, I love it. I, I I'm. I'm getting less frustrated, and the reason why I'm getting less less frustrated is not because I I see wise action taking place with policymakers. Um, I'm getting less frustrated because the ever the, the scientific data evidence is becoming clearer and clearer. So the the the, the constraint that policymakers who refuse to engage with what you're talking about the 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 wiggle room they have is diminishing daily. Uh, and so in a way, my frustration is diminishing because I go, you will get it. You will get <laughs> Eventually. it. Because, well, yeah, probably sooner than later because you just have to. So for example, the, the example with, with the crisis in energy, you know, and so suddenly I, I, I was noticing the other day that everybody seems to be dressing a little bit more traditionally, should we say putting more layers on and everyone's just doing it now without thinking and it's not really a big burden and then we find we don't need the heating on so much because actually we we've sort of gone back in time a little bit to an age when we didn't have central heating that we could just switch on at a flick of a switch you know so I'm, I'm kind of looking at it and then people are sort of saying well it's not so bad really <laughs> I know. It never yeah. was. Yeah, there's all, all sorts of, <laughs> yeah. of tweaks we can do. And, and my, my top tip is, um, you know, Merino Long Johns. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so, Get the yeah. Merino Long Johns. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in terms of, you know, the conversations that you are noticing from companies and governments, yeah. um, are you seeing more awareness of critical raw materials and the need for circularity and so on, and um, and, and yeah. maybe interest in alternative materials to avoid the risky ones? Um, well, let's deal. They're two totally different questions. Let's deal with the first bit first. Um, am I more optimistic with with incredibly wise decisions and and knowledge and understanding? in industry and with policymakers now. Do I sit in meetings on a regular basis and go, oh, by the way, let me tell you about critical materials. And I finish after 10 minutes and then there's just shock horror in the room. Black swan, why did nobody tell us this? And how did I not know? And then I thought I heard something, but I did. I now realize I didn't understand it. Um, so that's not changing that fast. Although I should say very subtly, that is very subtly, it is getting better. So if there's five people in the room one might say, yeah, I've been reading about this. He's right. So that's that's the new thing, whereas everybody is looking at each other, shrugging shoulders, like I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, so that's getting better. Uh, that's with companies. Um, the big value of the topic is I can sit and make dramatic statements like, if you don't understand this in your products and your services, and if you don't change, you will be out of business. 
So that is a good way of getting a senior team's attention because they do care about that. Um, with policymakers, um, it, it's getting a lot better. There's there's a lot more dialogue. There's a lot more exploration. I see a lot more. There's a growing uh, research and innovation investment. There's more desire to get a better handle on data. And there's more of a sense of, as I was talking about earlier, and you were talking about resilience. How do we build resilience? So I, I know the next half of the Horizon Europe program in Europe is going to be themed resilience. So how do we build that? I had a, I had a conversation yesterday with, with a colleague who, who discussed with me um, strategic autonomy. You know, so these sort of expressions and these terms are coming out from policymakers with a real, again, driven by what's happened with global supply chains and then energy in the war. We are vulnerable, we are exposed, we are weak. We're not doing what it says on the policymakers tin, which is protect and secure and provide safety for, for the citizens. And they're not able to do it on a linear fossil fuel based world. They, it's failed. Uh, and there is a growing realization. I'm, and again, I notice I keep talking about policymakers, and I'm not talking about politics. That's that's a slightly obviously interconnected but different dimension. Is politics changing? Um, it sometimes seems depressingly not. But then I maybe would reflect. Maybe it's the the last gasps of the old thinking that is on its last legs because evidence is just showing otherwise but maybe i'm ever optimistic yeah i think what what we what we need on that is is one um one country to kind mm. of forge ahead with a yes. you know, more circular regenerative model yes. and that and that will good. really get the politicians yes. thinking differently at the moment they're all just and you know in in the uk we seem to be veering ever further towards you know what I would term as free market fundamentalism, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, let's let's don't don't get me started on that. Don't, I won't get you started. <laughs> but on the, on your second question, your second question is about um, can we can we find other elements to do the things we want uh, that will replace them? Um, the answer is, as usual, very mixed. Uh, a yes no type answer. Um, there are some areas of scientific research on materials where we, we look at them and sort of go, well, we could use these. It's it, it's a term I don't like because I don't think it's a reality, but it's elements or materials of abundance. So can we can we use these more plentiful, seemingly plentiful materials? And they have no. So we're asking the impossible of technology and materials. So like, can I just take seawater and then just make everything out of it without impacting anything and it's like hmm. on on the current range of technologies which we are banking on to get us out of the climate mess at the diffusion and scale and and the key answer to this point this knotty mix is time so can we build some new idea that somebody has on lab scale in a university or a research center? Can we build it at scale and deploy it at scale in society within seven years? And generally the answer is no. They, they fail on the time dimension. 
can we ramp it up quicker? The other thing they fail on is systems. So they'll often say, well, my material just uses fresh air and seawater or something, da, da, da. And you go, but this technology you need to make it, that's outside my scope. I don't want to talk about that. Or how much energy does it need and where are you getting the energy from? No, I don't want to talk about that. I just want to talk about this material using fresh air and seawater. So it's, there's a systems conundrum I often see with these ideas. Mm. So, it, yeah, it sounds like we need to encourage people to not just focus on the materials but focus on systems thinking as well when they're coming up with their um their big ideas so david if you could offer people one piece of advice or a phrase to help them thinking about the resources landscape that we're in and and moving further into what would you say to them slow let's go slower um it's a time problem and obviously the time problem is there isn't enough so if we can slow things down, it buys us time. Mm, yeah. And time, as as with many things in life, and because the older one gets, the more one realizes this, the more time you give difficult situations, the better the outcomes can be. It's when we have to do things in haste that we make poor decisions mm. and with dramatic outcomes. So I'm very keen on slowing uh, and product life extension in circular economy is a form of slow. Does it, is it a silver bullet? Does it answer everything? No, um, but it buys time. And I think the one thing we need is time. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. I like that. And if you could wave a magic wand and, and change one thing to help create a better world, what would that be, David? A realization of where materials come from and what someone else had to do and go through to provide it so this at the moment we just reach behind us without even turning around and take and i think if we actually understood what has to happen and what happens to whom in the world we might pause and think a little bit more mm. yeah i think when you look at the complexity of some of the global supply chains and the amount of backtracking from here to there and the number of stages involved in the in the process it it can be mind-blowing can't it and maybe maybe those realizations would help people treat things as um scarce or or you know um under pressure so david is there somebody that you'd recommend as a future guest for the circular economy podcast yes there is my good friend colleague and former supervisor as well in my PhD, Connie Backer, Professor Connie Backer from TU Dublin. Absolutely a gem of, of knowledge and ideas. So I really recommend her highly. Great stuff. I've seen uh, some of Connie's work online, so I'm sure we'll be able to dig into some of the work that she does in and, uh, and unpack it for people. So thank you. And lastly, David, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing and get in touch? Yeah, well, luckily, uh, if somebody's interested in critical materials, what are they? How do we define them? What do we do? We have a massive open online course, MOOC on the edX platform. So if you just type into a search engine, something like 
edit, move critical materials, you get it pretty quick. And that's free and it's a full program and you can dip in and out. You don't have to do the whole thing. You can use it as a mini library or whatever you like to do with it. And it's Creative Commons, so you can use it in any way you like. That sounds brilliant. I'll definitely uh, include a link to that in the show notes. And I've done some of the TEDF MOOCs in the past and found them really brilliant. Uh, I did one on uh, packaging design, I think. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I thought it was really in- insightful and, uh, you know, so so much good practical stuff that you, you could take away and think about. So, David, thanks so much for sharing your um, your thoughts and your time with us today. It's yeah. been a fascinating conversation, and uh, you know, um, there's a couple of topics <laughs> we could have we could have um, put the world to rights on. I'm sure, uh, you oh, know, many, <laughs> between many, not that anybody many. would have necessarily changed, but you know, it's just <laughs> um, so much to so much that we need to resolve, isn't there? But thank you very much for for giving us your time today. Thank you, Catherine. Take care. David talked us through the methodology behind the CRM assessment, supply risk in terms of continuity, and economic risk. That method could easily be applied by individual companies across the full range of their resources. Although you'd never have the full picture because you can't be aware of every other sector that might be planning to use the same resources as you, it's well worth thinking about the outlook for supply. What have you noticed about demand and supply balances over the past few years? And what kind of events can affect supply, whether that's affecting price or availability? David mentioned the increase, we could almost say explosion, of recent technologies that use critical raw materials, many of which are embedded in batteries, renewable energy production, and other things we see as essential for the transition to a low-carbon economy. But this goes much further than the resources already featured in critical raw material lists. For example, we're now seeing competition for recycled polyester, our pet, between the fashion and food sectors, and lots of companies are looking at ways to shift from plastic-based materials to biomaterials, putting further pressure on agricultural land. When you see a possible future supply risk, whether that's a risk of scarcity or higher prices, you can ask how essential this material is for your business. Might you be able to design products differently to keep those materials in the loop for longer and to be able to recover them more easily and cost-effectively at the end of use? I might be a bit of a risk geek, as one of my previous corporate roles was project risk management. But I think looking ahead and thinking clearly about what could go wrong is invaluable. It can help you set up review systems to check on trends. It can help you plan how you can reduce the effects of things going wrong. And it can help you think about circular solutions to avoid the impact altogether. We know that some risks are almost impossible to foresee, including those catastrophic black swan events. But many risks can be predicted, and then you can keep an eye on whether they're looking more likely or they've receded. We didn't have enough time to unpack what we could do differently, though a couple of things are worth emphasising, particularly the ethics and concepts of fair shares. 
If a key resource becomes scarce or if mining more of it has social or environmental downsides, what should we do? Just last month, Greta Thunberg's charity donated money to cover legal costs of indigenous Sami people in Sweden's Arctic North to help them battle a mining company over plans for an iron ore mine on reindeer herding lands. I've put a link to that in the show notes. We discuss the complex issues around mining. Many of us wish for a world where we wouldn't need to mine things. And David explains what we need to consider before we just say ban mining and how saying that is in conflict with the lifestyles many of us want to lead. Then there are other angles if we're thinking about what to prioritise, and a big question of who decides. Going back to the new communication technologies in Gloria Flick's paper, what if they're competing with technologies for renewable energies, or for medical devices? Do we have to think about choosing tools over toys? David mentioned Britain's approach to reducing demand during the Second World War through rationing and allocations. Might we need a Global Resources Council to make these decisions about what to prioritise for whom? As David explained, what we have to start thinking about is a set of poor choices. The mission is to find the least poor set of choices for that material and that challenge because there just aren't good solutions that are realistic to deploy that societies, governments and companies will accept, so we have to navigate our way through. David mentioned the issues with cobalt and conflict minerals, particularly for smartphones. If you want to make a more ethical choice, have a look at the Fairphone, which uses fair and conflict-free minerals. These supply and demand imbalances are one of the reasons why we should prioritise circular strategies that slow the flow of production and consumption by keeping the product and its materials in use for much longer and by creating ways to use things more intensively so we need fewer in the system overall. Paper use car rental is a simple example there. And of course, when objects have finally reached the end of their useful life, we need efficient systems to recover materials for the next batch of products. We might even find ways to efficiently recover valuable materials from existing waste, like landfill mining or urban mining. As I'm saying this, I'm realising it's all pretty depressing stuff for the episode just before Christmas. So instead, let me send you all my best wishes for a happy and healthy 2023. That's a wrap for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, David Peck of Technical University Delft, for taking time out of his incredibly busy schedule to share his expertise with us. As always, you can find out more about David Peck and the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulateconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. 
talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.